You know, it's instinctive for us to to protect ourselves, to to provide for ourselves. I was amazed by a story that I heard coming out of California this week, and maybe you saw this on maybe news that you were watching of of a woodpecker that just had been storing acorns in the walls of this person's house. And they must have cut a hole in their wall like for an outlet or something like that and outpoured all these acorns onto their living room floor. Turned out there were 700 pounds of acorns in the walls of their house. Nice, yep. I think the woodpecker went nuts. But at what length? At what length will we go to in order to provide for what we need when we think we need it? At what length will we go to in order to provide what we need when we think we need it? If the length that we will go to crosses the boundaries that God has put around the needs that we have, that is when that becomes sin. This morning we look at the testing of the king. In many ways when Jesus showed up to John's baptism service and was baptized, he was reporting for duty. And the Holy Spirit, we saw, descended on God the Son, anointing him for ministry. And God the Father spoke from heaven, giving him his approval. God approved, uh, God recommended, God approved. You know, like the old kick cereal, mom recommended, mom approved. Jesus' God recommended, God approved for ministry. And then we see him go for his testing. For the world to be able to see how it is that the Savior deals with temptation. This question of to what length will we go to in order to provide for what we need when we think we need it. This question is much of what the testing of Jesus had to do with. What length would he go to in order to provide what his body needed? Even the most simple thing of food. Would he make use of his divine power that he had submitted to God the Father and to, to the Holy Spirit during his time of walking the earth as a man? He had submitted the use of his power to their direction. Would he draw off of that power unilaterally, autonomously, in order to provide for what he needed, even in the simple need of food? Would he force God, the Father, to make good on his word in taking care of him immediately in that moment? Would he bypass the cross in order to, in, in, in the attempt to get that glory that would eventually be his anyway? These are the questions that we ask as we enter into reading of Jesus' testing in the wilderness. Testing through being tempted 
by God's enemy, Satan. So we read in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, then being right after his baptism. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's kind of like a no-brainer. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We read that it was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness. And the purpose was that the devil might tempt him. The whole of this amounts to a testing or a proving of Jesus' righteousness. And just simply making use of the devil for this purpose. This wilderness... Uh, of Judea, especially around the Dead Sea area, was wilderness because there is no food found there. Anybody visited the, the Badlands out in South Dakota? We used to live an hour away from the Badlands. You know, they warn you as you're walking into the Badlands, have one gallon of water per person if you're going to enter there. I just uh, read... Um, a headline in Israel today regarding this wilderness area that was saying group of people that went on a nighttime walk into the wilderness were finally found. It's a dangerous place to be. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to a place where there was no food to eat. This is very similar to the children of Israel being tested for 40 years in the wilderness. And we'll, we'll see there's a lot of parallels between Jesus being tested for these 40 days and Israel being tested in the wilderness. But we continue reading in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This pinnacle of the temple, it's, it, it's impossible to really know specifically which location it's speaking of. It could be the, the highest point of the Temple Mound overlooking the Kidron Valley, which would be about a 300-foot drop, or, or the highest point of the uh, Herod's Temple of that day, which would have been about a 180-foot drop down to the floor of the Temple Mound below. But either way, it was a death-defying distance that Jesus would have jumped from. We continue on in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Obviously, this is a sort of vision that he was giving him. And, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then we read in verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This, this term for ministering specifically refers to ministering with food, ministering with sustenance. Like Elijah in the wilderness, food was provided for Jesus by God the Father at this point through his angels. I want you to take note of a few things here. Jesus was tempted to provide food for himself through the rebellious use of his power, through the unilateral use of the power that he had submitted under God the Father's direction. And then God finally provided that food for him that he needed in the end. Jesus was tempted to assume on the promised ministry of angels to catch him if he were to jump. But notice it's, it's the angels that finally come that God the Father sends to him to bring him aid and food at God the Father's direction. And of course, it was, uh, we know that Jesus would be exalted over all powers and authorities, finally and eventually. But it would be in God's timing after accomplishing our redemption. And without glorifying Satan in the process. This final outcome is significant for us to see. God the Father did take care of Jesus in God the Father's perfect timing. There's always multiple layers of the situation that's recorded about Jesus. There's so much of biblical history that is pivoting on these days of Jesus' ministry. It isn't surprising because the days of Jesus' ministry, it was, it was pivotal, as I say, for all of biblical history, that there's so many layers involved. Those days were a pivot between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or as we know, B.C. and A.D., and they were pivotal for the redemption of God's people. They were pivotal for the defining of who could be a child of God and how. <clears throat> One of the layers that's always being dealt with is the significance of Jesus' actions in biblical history. We could focus through these verses on how Jesus had become the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. Much of our passage being parallel with Israel's being tested in the wilderness themselves. And, and I, I'll, I'll refer to that a bit just as I referred to uh, it being parallel to Israel being tested for 40 years in the wilderness. But another layer is the, is the work of Christ in the fulfilling of all righteousness. As he told John the Baptist needed to be, take place so that all that it might fulfill all righteousness in his being baptized. Certainly Jesus' testing is proving that he is the right and able candidate to take God's redemption plan across the finish line to the cross, to his resurrection and exaltation. Another important layer is for Christians to read this passage and see the example for us in our life. As we are tempted. 
Certainly we should be encouraged that our Savior, in the way that He went about defending Himself from this temptation, can bolster us in our trust of Him. We are called to follow Him. Just as Paul told the Corinthians, to follow me as I follow Christ. We're called to have the same attitude that Christ displayed in his humility, his service, and his sacrifice. As one writer says, Jesus was tempted so that every creature in heaven, on earth, and on, or under the earth might know that Jesus Christ is the conqueror. He exposed Satan and his tactics, and he defeated Satan. Because of his victory, we can have victory over the tempter as well. Because harvesters, we hold the conviction that that we should be applying the truth to daily life. I'm choosing to center the points of this message on how we can follow our Savior's lead as followers of Christ. How we can deal with temptation in Christ's power as he did. So to pass the test of temptation, I want to challenge you. Trust what God has provided. Trust what God has provided. Again, this this boils down to God's perfect timing when he provides what he provides. We see this in, in the amazing situation of Jesus having fasted for 40 days, having been carried by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. That the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil tempted Jesus to satisfy his needs, his normal physical needs for food by his supernatural power, as I mentioned, outside of the Father's will, outside of the Father's direction. He could have turned those stones into bread easily. Jesus refuted the tempter with the truth of God's word. Life and provision flows from the very words that God speaks. Jesus quoted a verse regarding what Israel was taught in their wanderings in the wilderness, but they failed to learn it. They were taught it, but they failed to learn it. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you when he and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The statement that man is to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God refers to Scripture, of course. But it also, more specifically, refers to God's will as, as 
given in his commands. His commands being the expression of his will. Israel lived by the commands of God. First and foremost, because God commanded that food in the form of manna would be provided for them every morning. So it's by God's commands that they lived. The very word that God was speaking, that they had sustenance. And so in the same ways, it was to bleed over into all of these commandments that they had for life and godliness. For them to look at and say, we live by God's very word, the command that he gives. Therefore, we should look at all of the commands that he gives and to realize life is found here. Similarly, they were to live by God's word and commands as they walked with him, trusting and obeying him. Recall Jesus tells his disciples in John 4, my food is to do the will of my father. That's the example we are to follow. In the same way, we are to be more focused on accomplishing God's will rather than on our provision. As Jesus will teach us in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is displaying this in his life. Seeking first God's glory, God's kingdom, knowing God will provide. The Father will provide for my needs. You know, we see this in principles, in, in our stories, in our legends, in our, in our fables. Think of Dorothy and her friends in The Wizard of Oz. What are they told to do? Follow the yellow brick road. Don't step off of it. Don't step off the path. How many fables like Hansel and Gretel come down to wandering off the path? You know, this, this, this story was begun even before sin entered into the world. Luke focuses more on this than Matthew does. But Luke focuses on how Jesus is the, what's called the second Adam. 1 Corinthians tells us that the first Adam, the first man that was created, became a living being. But the second Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam, let's think about this. Whereas Jesus was in the wilderness with no food, the first Adam had all the food he ever needed. All, all, the, all the sustenance he ever required right there at his fingertips. Except there was one tree. The yellow brick road, if you will, was very, very wide. There was only one spot that they weren't to go to. Yet, they went to it anyways. And brought sin into the world. Jesus says the second Adam was left without food was left without sustenance, was called to trust that God was going, that God the Father was going to provide him with what he needed when it was the right time. And he accomplished what the first Adam, given everything at his fingertips, wouldn't do. When we seek to meet our physical needs 
without care for God's will, we sin. When we allow our situation to dictate how we behave, instead of following God's desire, we sin. We miss the mark. And we pay the price. If you're a jerk when you're hungry, you know we talk about being hangry. If you're a jerk when you're hungry, you have a flesh problem. This is a sin problem. I know it's cute to say, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. But if that's true about you, you need Jesus to change you. If you need a stiff drink or two in order to function, you have a drinking problem. Plain and simple. You need God's help with that. One writer says it is important to note that Jesus faced the enemy as a man, not as the Son of God. His first word, man shall, man shall not live by bread alone. We must not think that Jesus used his divine powers to overcome the enemy because that is just what the enemy wanted him to do. Jesus used the spiritual resources that are available to us today. The power of the Holy Spirit of God and the power of the Word of God. Secondly, I want to challenge you to pass the test of temptation as we follow Jesus's. Example, to pass the test of temptation, let God fulfill his promises in his timing. Then the devil took him, we see, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Notice how the devil adapted his temptation to Jesus' response before, right? He might have just as well said, oh, it's scripture that you care about. Then I'll quote scripture for you. And he tries to manipulate Jesus by claiming that either God's promise isn't true or Jesus isn't really the Son of God. Well, there's a third option that Jesus says and chooses. I'll just not test God, thank you. He's telling Jesus that by jumping, he could finally prove the truth. Prove that he's the son of God and prove that God, what God will say he will do. It's not surprising that the devil would lie using a verse of scripture to try to suit his purpose. The closer any deception is to the truth makes it all the more difficult to discern. Interestingly, he, he quotes here the very psalm that Curtis referred to in the announcements today, Psalm 91. And Jesus countered the devil's efforts with clearly understood statement from Scripture that commanded against testing God's faithfulness. And the statement, once again, is, is a warning not to be like the nation of Israel who tested the Lord with disobedience. And the fact that God the Son was called to walk in relationship 
with God the Father, one of trust, not testing him. And as Christ followers, we're called to walk in the same relationship of trust and obedience. You know, it's common for a young person to fear that the right Christian person just isn't going to come along for them to date and to marry. So they're tempted to settle for dating an unbeliever. Maybe they even say to themselves, I'll date that boy or that girl, but, but I'll, I'll break up with them if they don't become a Christian. That young person needs to be able to reference God's command against being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. They need to be able to refute that with God's word. That is a temptation, a test from the enemy. It's common for a college student to think, well, I should party a little bit in order to be able to relate to those who party. Maybe they even think, God won't let me to go too far, and if he does, he'll forgive me. They need to think of the fact that we are to flee immorality, that we are to have nothing to do with the world's deeds of darkness. The Christian who struggles with alcohol might think, well, if I don't spend some time in the bar, how am I to learn what's too much alcohol? They may even think, you know, God will convict me if I'm going too far. They need to heed God's warning to beware the drink when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Sadly for those, for all of these, God is probably already convicting the person in these scenarios. But their hearts have become callous, and they're rationalizing why they think they're okay. The truth is, is that they're testing God and are unlikely to find his help as they yield to temptation little more after a little more. How many times have we heard someone tell God, well, if you're really this, then do this for me. God's answer is, I'm not a circus trick. I don't do stunts. Lastly, to pass the test of temptation, I want to challenge you. <clears throat> Worship God with costly Obedience. <coughs> Pardon me. That is the, the example of our Savior. Worshiping the Father with costly obedience. We read in verse 8 through 10. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you. If you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, it's debatable even whether Satan has the authority to give the right to reign over all of these kingdoms. He is the prince of this present age, but he's also the father of lies. So I'm not sure it matters what he claims. 
But it gets down to brass tacks here by this third temptation. Satan cuts to the chase and basically says, okay, I'll give you what you're after if you give me what I'm after. I'll give you what you obviously care about if you'll give me what I care about. The devil offered all the glory and everything in the world, all the glory of all these kingdoms. The fact is, this would be Jesus's in the end. Satan was, was well aware of what was foretold that Jesus would become. But Jesus's reign would come through his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation once again at the Father's right hand. Satan was offering a shortcut to glory that would have derailed our redemption. Jesus had no problem refusing the devil's ploy because he knew the first commandment. We are to worship nothing other than the creator God himself. We see a picture of what Satan is truly after from Jesus And this is what he is truly after from all people. Those people that God created to worship him. Satan wants to be worshipped instead of God being worshipped. Only one of them can be worshipped. By Jesus or by any one of us. Satan or God. Israel is described as worshiping demons with their idolatrous practices, provoking God to anger. Deuteronomy 32 verse 17 says, They sacrificed to demons that were not gods. Paul warned that all pagan worship is actually the worship of Satan's forces. In 1 Corinthians 10.20 we read, What pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And what hits a little closer to home is how self-centered, unbiblical teaching can be inspired by Satan himself. 1 Timothy 4.1 writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This is actually describing teaching that would be going on and I believe is going on in some churches. Where God is no longer worshipped. And if God is not worshipped, Satan is worshipped. You see, when we worship ourselves, when we pursue first and foremost our pleasure, we're actually worshipping Satan. You may or may not have heard about the worship service that took place at the Grammys last week. I wouldn't refer it to a worship service if if tweets from from some worldly sources didn't call it such. Some tweeted out before the performance saying, getting ready to worship. In it, one artist portrayed himself as the devil as devotees danced around him. Another artist portrayed himself as a special devotee in his transsexual persona in a cage. One would assume was 
being presented as an offering. The psalm that they were performing was, is called unholy. And the bottom line is, is it was a pretty honest performance. One of my favorite podcasters, who's not a Christian himself, he's an he's a Orthodox Jew. He, he got to the point when he said, Satan wants you to worship him. But the way that you worship him, first, is that you worship yourself. You're basically the conduit for Satan when you worship yourself. He went on to say, worshiping your sense of sexual joy, worshiping your sense of subjective happiness at the expense of everyone else. If you do all these things, then Satan is standing right behind that. We're tempted to worship ourselves and our desires by seeking our self-fulfillment, no matter the cost. We need to remember the picture of Satan asking Jesus to kneel before him and worship him. Because the worship of self is just the worship of Satan. It is stealing worship from God and therefore glorifying Satan. Instead, if you know Christ as your Savior, you're to die to yourself. And your fleshly desires. You're to live for Christ. And his glory. And that means trusting God. To provide you with what you need. The cross that Jesus needed to embrace. To save us. Is what we are to embrace daily. In worshiping God. This is what we're told in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with him. I no longer live. Just as Jesus did not give in to the temptation to bypass the cross, we are to worship God with costly obedience. Our passage wraps up with this statement in verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And, and I pointed out the fact that God finally provided him with food. He provided it with him to him in a supernatural way. God provided him with the ministry of the angels. But all of this was in God's timing and therefore glorified God rather than worshiping Satan. Of course, Jesus had the power to shoo Satan away at any time. And Luke tells us that the devil would return at another opportune time. One of those times is when he would speak through Peter. Telling Satan, surely you're not going to go to the cross. And what did Jesus say in response? Get behind me, Satan. We experience the same of, of Satan uh, 
removing himself simply till another opportune time. As a writer says, one victory never, never guarantees freedom from further temptation. If anything, each victory we experience only makes Satan try harder. So, friend, that means we must depend on the Lord all the more. But we can also be encouraged that we've been told that Satan will flee when we resist him. As James 4, 7 tells us, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So trust God. Glorify God. By trusting him to provide what you need in his perfect timing. And know that whatever discomfort you experience as you wait, as you trust Him, as you depend on Him, is bringing glory to Him as you wait on Him in obedience. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank You for Your provision. We thank You, Father, especially for Your provision of our redemption. That did not come without pain. <clears throat> it did not come without sacrifice. It took the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Lord, as we turn to focus on the sacrifice of your son, we thank you, Lord. Jesus, we thank you for not bypassing our redemption, but accomplishing the mission that you and the Father and the Holy Spirit had set out to do. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.